The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out Space News and Mission Deep Dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. The spectrophotometer for the history of the universe, Epic of Reionization, and ISIS Explorer, or SphereX, is a two-year science mission designed to survey the cosmos in 96 color bands, mapping the whole sky once every six months, and all of this data will be publicly available. The mission was recently selected by NASA's Explorers program and is targeting a 2023 launch. Today on the show, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Zemkov of the Rochester Institute of Technology. Dr. Zemkov is an assistant professor at the RIT Center for Detectors and one of 19 co-investigators for the SphereX mission. Dr. Zemkov, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So to get started, uh, can you describe the mission architecture of SphereX? So the MIDEX class missions are sort of in the middle of the road in terms of, you know, orbital uh, size missions that NASA does. Um, it's the largest principal investigator driven mission that, that NASA will do, at least in astrophysics, meaning that it um, many of the bigger missions, for example, JWST that you hear of, those are sort of more run by committee and they don't really have principal investigators per se. They kind of have steering committees and so on and so forth. So, um, Jamie Bach is the PI of Spherex, and he's he's basically ultimately responsible for the whole thing. So it's like having a general in charge instead of, you know, a committee. Um, in terms of, you know, size, weight, that sort of thing, um, it's a few hundred kilograms, um, including the spacecraft bus, and about the size of a desk, I would say, is the closest thing I can think of. Um, the telescope itself is tiny. The... Uh, primary aperture is about 20 centimeters and it has uh three mirrors and then some um, beam splitters and then some filters um so when i think about the actual telescope i think of something about the size of a suitcase and then when you actually look at a picture of the thing it looks like it's surrounded by an umbrella what that is is heat shields that are uh letting the telescope passively cool down to about 45 kelvin um which we need for our detectors to work and in fact, the, the MIDEX design is designed to fit into um, a fairing for a Pegasus XL, um, though we may go on a Falcon 9. We don't know yet. Very cool. Can you describe what kind of orbit that Spherix will be in? So Spherix is going to be in a uh, Earth Terminator orbit, which is um, basically the sunset sunrise line. Um, and it kind of follows that around and around and around over time. The reason for that is basically we never want the sun to uh, be able to view the telescope directly because of course then it heats it up right it, you get the full sun loading you'll you'll suddenly get the telescope up to 300 kelvin so um, the idea is that if you go on the sunset sunrise line you can basically tilt everything so that the sun never sees into the heat shields and we can radiatively you know cool the internal stuff to space. What are the science objectives of the of the mission? The problem with Spherix, or the nice thing about Spherix, I guess it's not really a problem, it's a feature, uh, is that it will do a whole lot of things. So um, 
the concept here is to uh, map the entire sky between 0.75 and 5 microns in resolution of like 50 up to 150 um, spectral elements over that whole wavelength range over the whole sky. And the things you can do with that kind of data set are truly phenomenal. Like it, it, we can talk about that later. I'm sure we will. But the things that our team decided we were most interested in are three things. We want to do inflation, uh, which is the earliest moments of the universe after the Big Bang. Cosmologists like myself think that the universe underwent a very rapid kind of explosive um, expansion and then for whatever reason decided to stop. And what that did was it was it made quantum mechanical scales blow up to uh, cosmic scales. And that explains a variety of things we see about the universe. And one of the problems with inflation is there's not a lot of ways to get at it. So spherics is one of the few kind of promising leads we have where we might be able to sort of understand these early moments. Um, another of the science cases is to understand the evolution of galaxies over cosmic history. Um, and we do that basically by the fact that it's a spectral instrument, so we can really kind of map out what the energy output of galaxies are, is. Um, and if we have some idea of where we are, which we will because we will be able to determine distance very well, um, we can kind of map that statistically out. And then the final thing is we're looking for water ice. So, uh, and that, that's going to be uh, in the Milky Way um, around young stars and, and, and stars that are currently forming. So that's really the three prongs of spherics that, that the science team is, is pursuing. All three of these science objectives will be using the same set of data? Yeah, so it's designed to be a surveyor. So um, really, you know, as it's going around the Earth in this Terminator orbit, it's picking up sort of like six fields as it goes around and observing deeply and then switching to another field, observing deeply and switching to another field and observing deeply. And the idea is that if you pick which fields you're looking at over time, you can build up a map of the whole sky. Um, so that's really the sort of concept here is to uh, uh, make a data set that is this kind of uh, catalog or a uh, complete set that is a little bit different than what, you know, Hubble or JWST is, is capable of doing. Right, like a comprehensive map of the night sky in these bands. It's an all-sky map, and we've done lots of all-sky maps before. Um, you know, NASA has, uh, for example, Planck and WMAP, and then going way, you know, further into the past. But I think this is the first sort of comprehensive all-sky map with this resolution at these wavelengths. Great. And that's a uh, brings up a great question. So we know about uh, WFIRST and James Webb, which are both going to be uh, space telescopes looking in the infrared. Uh, but how does SphereX and SphereX's goals fit into the broader astronomy ecosystem alongside these other existing and proposed missions? So the um, interesting thing is that SphereX has a lot of synergy, and I think part of the reason that it was selected is that it has a lot of sort of complementarity with these other things. Uh, so, for example, JWST is really, really awesome at drilling very deep and having really high angular resolution on a really small patch of sky. But the problem is that it has a finite lifetime, and it is really not going to be able to map anything like the whole sky. You're going to have to point at things you're particularly interested in. So... Um, 
you know, certainly astronomers have some idea of what they're already interested in. But if you have a data set like Spherix, it really opens a lot of doors in terms of finding interesting objects that are sort of outside the norm. We haven't really had a data set like the one Spherix is going to produce where we can go out and sort of say, oh, wow, that's a really weird galaxy or that's a really weird protostar or whatever. Um, and I think that that matches with what JWST is really strong at um, in a nice way. So the spacecraft will be collecting a lot of data. What uh, data is kind of going above and beyond these three objectives, which you might consider be bonus data that other researchers who, once they get access to this data set, could make different observations and different inferences with? Oh, gosh. Well, so... Uh... You know, these kind of missions um, don't sort of spring from the ground at the time that uh, they get selected. And in fact, I've been working on Spherix since, gosh, about 2013. Uh, that was sort of the inception of the idea. And in the time between then and now, so I guess it's been six years, um, we've had a couple workshops, community workshops, where we invited astrophysicists from all different branches of astrophysics to come um, and say what what they're interested in. And I, I couldn't give a complete uh, set, but just to give you some idea, you know, we have people uh, on the team who are very excited about looking for asteroids and for Kuiper Belt objects and other sort of solar system um, objects. We're going to do a really good job measuring the zodiacal light, which is the diffuse dust that lives in the plane of the ecliptic around the sun. Um, and so there have been a variety of missions that have mapped that out over the years, but uh, Spherix will get really, really nice signal to noise on on very fine spatial scales and be able to ask questions that we haven't been able to ask so far. Um, going further out, um, Spherix is going to be a very effective uh, brown dwarf finding machine. So brown dwarf stars are stars that like uh, aren't massive enough to really support fusion on their own, and so. Uh, think of something you know bigger than Jupiter, but much smaller than the Sun. Um, they they still sort of have heat, and they still might generate a little bit of heat internally. Um, one really good question is, what's the population of these things? How many do you get, you know, in the galaxy? And and the Wise mission has given us you know a good answer, or at least the start of an answer to that. Spherix is going to be really really good at finding these things. Um, so you know, mapping out like what are the what are the very massive planets or, you know, slightly substar um uh objects that exist in this in the galaxy, you know, is a really good question. Uh, you know, further out it's uh um gonna be good for sort of um comparative like time domain um astronomy. So we'll be able to, you know, go back every six months and sort of compare, you know, has this field changed and we'll have a pretty good um, signal to noise ratio on whether, you know, a given star or AGN or whatever it happens to be um, has changed at all in that time. Um, and I think that the, the questions about things like galaxy clusters and galaxy evolution, um, these are really going to be open. There's just a whole bunch of topics that will just, you know, be available from this data set. So now that's a lot of exciting things for our listeners at home. AGN is a active galactic nuclei. These are, these are supermassive black holes that live at the center of galaxies and are, 
you know, actively in the process of accreting matter. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, they spew out these big, big jets that have, you know, these very, very high velocity particles in them. They're kind of like nature's particle accelerators. Um, and they have really, really high energies. So they're interesting for a variety of reasons, um, having to do with, uh, how supermassive black holes operate and how, um, galaxies are coupled to how supermassive black holes or at least the supermassive black holes in their center. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything else unique to Spherix as a spacecraft and also as a science mission? Well, I think one thing that's really cool is that this is a, a very compact instrument. Um, we have, you know, six detectors on there um, and these fancy what are called linear variable filters, which are filters that change their um, transmission characteristic across the face of the filter. So what you can do is you can put that in front of a detector array right up close. And what it means is a pixel on one side of the detector array is going to read blue and a pixel on the other side of the detector array is going to read red. And what that lets us do is it kind of lets us build up over many exposures the complete spectral information. It's a very clever solution um, because it doesn't really require any moving parts or any fancy optics. Um, so it's really low risk, which is kind of a kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And and what that means is that instead of taking a fixed snapshot of all the data, the satellite is actually taking composites that are slightly offset. And once the full frame has moved left to right, you have all of the spectral information in that picture. Yeah, you got it exactly. Yeah. You know, another unique thing or, or somewhat unique is the entirely passive uh, thermal design. So uh, a lot of, you know, spacecraft use heat shields, but um, not so many have been entirely passive where they sort of, the only way they cool themselves is by not pointing at the sun. Um, the most recent probably that people might be familiar with is, is the Spitzer Warm mission. So Spitzer was an infrared um, great observatory that NASA flew oh, about the turn of the century. And um, it, had a, it had a very, you know, excellent career um, as a cryogenic mission, but then they ran out of cryogens. It ends up that some of the instruments were capable of working at temperatures that this telescope sort of floated to just by sitting in ambient space. And they were able to use that effect to keep the mission going for um, quite a while. And in fact, it's still going. It's going to finish probably this year. Spherix is not the first mission to have used this concept, but it is the first mission I'm aware of that is entirely dependent on it and is designed around it. So kind of doing a deep dive into the weeds of the science mission, um, why is Spherix observing these bands in particular, and how do they actually allow astronomers to interpret things like the history of galaxy formation and planetary formation, which exist on completely different scales? So it's a fact of how the universe works or how physics works that when you make a star... Uh, the typical temperature of a star is in the many thousands of Kelvin. And um, as a result, stars look more or less like black bodies. They have some features on top of that. But, you know, the broad, like thinking about how it, you know, how a star looks over wavelengths, it looks more or less like a black body with some characteristic temperature. And 
um, it ends up that those temperatures have the black body curve peak uh, in the near infrared and optical wavelengths, depending on the temperature. You know, it's a black body is a is a curve that if you have a black thing at a certain temperature, it will emit photons at a characteristic um, energy, you know, density basically, um, or 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 spectrum uh, that that tells you exactly what the temperature was of the source you're looking at. So um, the point is that stars emit most of their light in the near infrared. That's just a, a fact of of how stars work. So if you're interested in mapping out the structure of the universe as traced by stars, you would just pick these wavelengths because stars are not bright at other wavelengths. So it has to be something in sort of like the near infrared optical. Now, thinking about the inflationary science case, which I'm particularly excited about, um, how's that going to work? Well, the concept is that Inflation sort of set the initial conditions for the large-scale structure of the universe. So a certain kind of inflation makes a universe that looks a certain way, and a different kind of inflation makes a universe that looks a different way, and that's how you could kind of tell the difference between them. We think we understand the equations that govern how large-scale structure sort of forms and evolves over cosmic history really, really well. If we have a reliably good map of where the stuff is in the universe, basically run the equations backwards and back out what were the initial conditions? What did inflation impose on the universe? So if you want to map out galaxies, uh, there's a few sort of wavelengths where that would be sort of obvious, but one obvious place to look is where the stars are, right? Because that's what a galaxy is. So if you think that the sort of large scale structure of the universe is traced by where galaxies are, we might as well look for the stars. And that's kind of the concept of spherics. So what we're going to do is basically look at the position of all the galaxies in both you know x and y on the sky but also distance and then basically use that information to constrain what were these initial conditions we get the distance by basically saying okay well we know what galaxies what the energy distribution or energy output of galaxies looks like now they can look a bunch of different ways but the point is those are kind of understood their templates. So what we can do is we can take sort of a library of what galaxies look like and then fit against that and say, aha, well, this spectrum looks like this galaxy really well. And we know that we had to shift it by a certain distance. Um, and because of cosmic expansion, which, which basically imposes a shift in spectra of sources if they're very distant, um, we can say, ah, well, we know how distant it is. And it ends up we're going to know that distance to about 1%. So that's sufficient accuracy if you have enough information that you can back out this inflationary science. Um, it's a similar argument for the history of galaxies because galaxies, you know, one way of thinking about what a galaxy is, is um, that it's just a bunch of stars. And uh, if you kind of have that model in your head where well, you can say, well, so I know how stars emit and I know what the sort of features um, from the various elements in in their spectra, you know, impose on the spectrum of the galaxy as a whole. And you can go out and search for that. So you can basically constrain things like how much, how quickly is this galaxy forming stars? Uh, how big is the galaxy? How distant is the galaxy? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, by combining all that information, you can get a pretty accurate history of like, what was the 
you know, characteristic uh, emission of of the average galaxy or even all galaxies over cosmic history. And what about ices? I understand that stars can behave like black bodies. And if you know what stars look like, uh, you look in the infrared. But what about looking at ices? So that's a good question. So the ice targets we're looking at are a little bit different. They're not actually necessarily even stars yet. And if they are stars, many of them are going to be really obscured by dust and they're not going to look like a star. So uh, the concept there is that we don't care so much about what the spectrum of the star is. As long as we know that there's something there, we can say, okay, well, there's something there that that's interesting potentially. And then what ice is, is it's a spectral feature. So specifically water ice, we're going to look for other kinds of ice too, but, but water ice is possibly the most interesting. Um, what we're going to do is say, okay, well, we have some smooth curve that's the intrinsic spectrum of the source, and then we have these dips at these known wavelengths. And of course, um, stars in the galaxy don't really redshift very much because they don't their velocity compared to us is is relatively small. So those features, those ice features in the spectrum are going to show up, you know, very well-defined places. And the real question is how wide are those features? What's the shape of those features? And that can tell us about the this, this state of the ice um, and what its temperature is and interesting things like that. So you've spoken to astronomers about how they might use spherics data um, but what aspects have stirred up the most excitement in terms of the scientific community from the people you've talked to? Like, what are the astronomers most excited to see? You know, it's spherics is one of those really cross boundary things. I'm not sure I've ever worked on something like this before, where every single astronomer I talk to, once they sort of understand what the data set's going to look like, goes, holy smokes, I could do so much with that whatever their little, you know, field of expertise is. And I think that that's really the power of the data set is that it's it's got this huge legacy value that it's so complete and ideally, you know, so uh, constructed in a way where it's all kind of similar um, that it's going to have a lot of value because people will hopefully trust it and... Um, and be able to use it for whatever the heck they decide they want to use it for. And I, I, I don't think there's one thing that stands out to me because, you know, again, it really depends on what that person is interested in. But I, I, I'm not sure I've met an astronomer who kind of yawns and says, yeah, okay, not very interesting. I don't think I'm going to use that. So I, I really do think it's sort of cross cross boundaries in, a, in an interesting way. So uh, next, I'd like to go into the weeds in terms of the spacecraft itself. So you mentioned Spherix instrument will image the sky in a bunch of these different wavelengths using a linear variable filter. Um, can you explain how this is different from other ways of getting the spectral information? Like you're not using complex mirrors, you're not using a diffraction grating. Um, so what are the trade-offs here besides linear variable filters not having moving parts and some of the other things you mentioned. Are there other disadvantages to LVFs? Uh, the issue here is how do you disperse light? And the ways that we sort of typically disperse light uh, are with prisms or with gratings. And uh, the drawback of both of those things is that 
you can't get spectral information and spatial information simultaneously, or at least it's really hard. And the reason for that is if I have a source sitting next to another source and I disperse the light with, with one of those sort of traditional dispersion mechanisms, what I'm doing is I'm scrambling up the light, right? Because the light gets dispersed spatially. It goes from red to blue across the image of the at the focal plane. It's not just a single dot anymore. You're taking that light and you're spreading it out. So if I have two things next to each other along the line where that dispersion happens, their spectra gets all scrambled. And so what you know you typically have to do is put a kind of mask of some sort uh, in the optical system so you can really restrict down to just the sources you're interested in. And that's okay if you know where the sources you're interested in are, but if you're trying to do something like measure the spectrum of every point on the sky, it gets a little complicated because you're always going to have, you know, stars and galaxies, whatever, that are dispersing their light into neighboring black areas, and you just really have no idea how to unscramble it. It's a really complicated problem. So the nice thing about an LVF is... Although it comes at the cost of having to sort of march it around and take different pointings to, to fill in the data cube, um, you really get the opportunity to be entirely unique about which source is which photon coming from in your image. So um, if you had a way to do that with the sort of, sort of more traditional uh, gratings and prisms, they would be equally fast, but the problem is that they kind of don't work that way. So that's that was the sort of step when it came to spherics is, gosh, if we just use this, you know, relatively simple technique, um, we can be really effective at mapping. And that's really a synergy between the way that the LVF works and the way that these near-infrared detectors work, where a near-infrared detector is a kind of a photo detector where you have to point it at a spot on the sky and wait while it sort of integrates up photons. It builds up photons. Um, so it's not really the kind of detector where you can kind of scan it around the sky actively and just build up integration over time that way. You have to kind of be a little bit more, um, you have to be a little bit more pointed about it. So that was kind of the realization that it's the combination of the detector with the LVF that makes it really efficient to use in this mode. Okay, so we talked about the LVF and you mentioned the detectors. Spherix is going to use two sets of Hawaii 2RG detectors, which are CTDs that have a fair bit of history with space-borne uh, imagers. Each H2RG is a 2048 by 2048 pixel array. So that's, what, 16 million pixels for every collect. And then you rinse and repeat for the untold number of captures that are going to be required of the entire mission life of the spacecraft. What does the pipeline look like to handle all of this data? Well, that's a good question. So one thing is that the four focal planes is the older SMEX design. The MIDEX design that we're baselining now is going to have six. So all those numbers just got 50% worse. <laughs> I guess the sort of good news as far as the pipeline goes is that it's um, it's really like an assembly line. It's not the kind of thing where you can afford to worry about each and every pixel independently because you would never be able to shovel the data. So a lot of the pipeline work that we've been doing has been focused around um, 
figuring out what are the sort of measurements and techniques that we have to apply so that we can we can kind of pipeline this data faster than we take it. So we take an integration every roughly 100 seconds. Um, and what that means is if you can't process a f integration faster than 100 seconds when it gets to the ground, then you're kind of in trouble because you're going to be an analyzing data slower than you're taking it. Um, so the pipeline, fortunately, is pretty well understood. There's there's a bunch of steps in it. You know, it's not trivial, but it is all sort of addition, multiplication, subtraction, that sort of basic operation. So in general, it's fast. And really the hard part is uh, just the data volume is all the reading and writing to disk. So, you know, one thing is we have to kind of minimize all that and try and keep as much in RAM when, when we've actually write in a file and kind of process it all the way through. Um, you know, I guess the other the other feature is that uh, we're going to have to spend a lot of time before the mission figuring out how we're going to understand the data because once the mission is launched and goes through its you know month long commissioning phase, that's it. You better have everything in place because you have no more time to develop by the time it's actually you know making data. You're going to spend all your time trying to understand all the quirks in the data and then fixing it and trying to iterate. So. Um, you know, it's fortunate for us that we're not having to do anything that's computationally too intense, at least at the sort of low level of making images. Uh, so how are you going to convert a bunch of single images with many bands into one multispectral composite image of the sky? I'm not sure we'll ever make one big image of the sky. At least we haven't proposed to. Not that we couldn't if we wanted to, but... Um, we're thinking more along the lines of catalogs. What we really want to deliver to people is uh, there's a source here. It has a certain signal-to-noise ratio, and here's its spectrum. That's a little bit more handleable just because there's plenty of patches of sky that are black and you know not terribly interesting for most people, at least. Um, the actual sort of process is relatively easy, right? You just have a lookup table that says this pixel is looking at this color, um, and then you just go each time, it, you know, each position that was mapped to some particular source on the sky, you go pull all the uh, uh, images that that position fell on the array, and then you know what wavelength each of those times was, and then you can just build up a spectrum that way. It's... Um, it's a large databasing problem, but it's not terribly difficult sort of intellectually, I think. So you mentioned before that this satellite's going to be in a uh, Earth-terminated orbit, always in sunrise or sunset, uh, but the mission length is um, about two years. You plan to measure the entire sky each in six months. So how do you go about doing that uh, while still avoiding the sun? So if you think about uh, in six months, the Earth has moved halfway around the sun, which means that if you're restricting to positions on the sky, they're at 90 degrees to the sun, that you can basically map out 360 degrees because on one side of the Earth, you're seeing, you know, one part of the 90 or one part of the 180 and the other side, you're seeing the other part of the 180. And then as you move the Earth through 180, you're filling in that 360. So we should be able to map the sky once every six months that way. Um, the reason for two years instead of six months is we want to do some data redundancy checks. It's very important in this kind of thing to make sure that when you go back to a source, you get the same answer every time. Um, and we're 
you know, our strategy is to sort of mitigate systematic errors as much as we can in design, but um, there's always systematic errors. So, so, so two surveys is a lot of it to basically, or sorry, four surveys, I should say. A lot of it is to um, build up a understanding of the sky that's redundant in a way where we can make sure that we believe the answer. Um, there is a certain advantage also to the signal to noise ratio, but of course, you know, four visits, you're only getting error bars that are smaller by a factor of two. Are you including all four complete surveys as part of the data products that scientists can use? Will they be able to use this temporal aspect of it, or are you only using it for calibration and reducing your errors? No, I think uh, the plan is to release, you know, each survey as it comes out. So um, the 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 people will certainly have access to this temporal aspect. And, um, you know, one interesting sort of thought experiment is what if you're interested in asteroids, right? Those are going to be moving across the sky, you know, relatively quickly. And you're not going to see it six months later in the same spot. So, and in fact, you're going to see it kind of moving in a way where finding it is going to be a little tricky because it's going to be at a different wavelength each time. It's not going to map in any sort of smooth way compared to the cadence of observation. So um, I think that's like an interesting problem for the student, really, which is, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing, go and find it and figure out how to how to make it work. Um, it sounds like a fun problem to me. So one of the main advantages to Spherix's spacecraft design in the proposal is most, if not all of the components are, have already been flown before or are flight ready. So obviously this buys down risk, but does it also limit the potential performance of the instrument by not using the newest, latest and greatest technology? So that's a great question. So what's the latest and greatest technology here? Well, passive cooling is passive cooling. So if you can hit your target temperature, you're done. Going colder doesn't really buy you much. So there's no advantage there. As you know, Phil, telescopes basically scale with the cost of the mission. So if you want a bigger primary aperture, you have to pay for that. And it's not a slow scaling. It's like a power law. So um, there's not a lot of wiggle room in terms of how big do you make the optics. You could imagine fiddling with the wavelength range. So uh, we're going out to five microns. Um, Newer detectors that are being worked on at the University of Rochester, for example, are able to go out to 10 and possibly even longer wavelengths. Um, but they're very low TRL, so, you know, we would take some risk there. Um, and really, that's it. The spacecraft bus is, you know, made by Ball, and it's kind of off the shelf. Um, there are no moving parts. The star tracking cameras are off the shelf stuff. So um, it's not clear where you would want to, you know, improve the technology, perhaps in the detectors, the the newer detectors are actually uh, 4K by 4K, for example, but their pixel sizes are about 10 microns instead of 18. So basically you're getting a smaller pixel size. So, you know, if you think about, are you gaining much in terms of area or whatever, not not really. Um, the spectral resolution of the telescope is limited actually by the telescope um, a little bit more than by the pixel, or at least they're sort of compatible or, or comparable. Um, 
So would smaller pixels buy you more? Eh, probably not. They might actually make the noise worse. So, you know, this is really an issue of like the right thing at the right time, I think. So on the other hand, you mentioned that the there's no moving parts. All these things are, the problems with them are well known because they've been around for a while, for example. Um, it seems pretty robust. Does that mean that this spacecraft could potentially have extended missions beyond its initial two-year lifetime? Is that something you're looking forward to or expect? Yeah, so one nice thing about Spherix is that it's not really limited by any moving parts. And in fact, the expendables, I forget the budget, but the propellant required to keep it in orbit will last, you know, tens of decades, I think. Um so a good comparison here is WMAP. I, I don't know how much you guys know or remember about WMAP, but WMAP um, started out with a two-year mission at L2, and they had a similar thing. They had no moving parts, and they were basically limited by the propellant that would keep them at L2. And that was another case where they had like tens of decades of propellant to keep them in their orbit. So they could just keep going. And in fact, they went on going for eight years. Um, and basically what ended up you know, stopping the mission was that the scientific return, the, you know, the reduction in error bars they were seeing was kind of diminishing returns because it goes as the square root of the time. So, you know, once you get to eight years to get another factor of two, you have to go 16 years. And then, you know, it's a question of like, is it worth the cost of operations? Cause these things aren't that cheap, especially, you know, there'll be newer missions coming down the pipeline at that point. And, um, so that's definitely something that's been on our mind that we would consider an extended mission if it was justified. But I think, you know, this is one of those things where you have to see how you do and then deal with it when you get there. Um, kind of switching to your personal connection with the mission, what is your role or area expertise on the SphereX project? Right. So um, I did my postdoc in the cyber missions, which were... Um, Sounding rock. It was a Cyber One was a sounding rocket that was working at these wavelengths, and it was looking at the fluctuations in the near infrared background light. And in a lot of ways, it was the genesis for Spherix. So, um, in fact, in the early days, uh, when I was still a postdoc at Caltech, um, I was tapped to be the instrument scientist for Spherix and continued in that role for a while. Um, the the sort of you know ups and downs of Spherix over the years are, are kind of boring, but um, the point is, at some point, I, I had to put that down and, and come to RIT and uh, pick up my work there. And uh, as a result, it's going to be pretty difficult for me to do much in terms of hardware, just because a lot of the hardware is going to be done at JPL. And, you know, for obvious reasons, they like to keep that in-house. Um, so a lot of my role is going to be in the data analysis because I have a lot of experience analyzing data from, from detectors like this, for science like this, and um, I think I have a pretty good grasp of what the pipeline is and needs to do. Um, so there's a small team of us on the, on the mission, um, Brendan Krill, myself, Matt Ashby, others that are really focused in on starting the data analysis. And we want to start that, you know, as soon as possible. In fact, we've already started because, um, again, you know, once it launches, that's a fire hose. I've been on orbital missions before and you just don't have time to adapt or change anything at that point. You're really just in reaction mode. Um, so a lot of what I'm thinking about is how do we deal with the fact that 
uh, photons come in the telescope and then a bunch of stuff happens to them and then numbers get reported to us. And how do you undo all that properly so that you can make a good image and then subsequently a catalog of sources on the sky that you can hand to people and they can believe and do science with? So that's that's my main role at the moment. Uh, can you tell us a story about how you first heard about the mission and, and when you first got involved? Oh, gosh. Um, so the thing about this is I feel like I've been pretty involved from a pretty early stage stage um you know the genesis of spherics goes all the way back almost 10 years to a little mission we proposed um called zebra and the idea for zebra was to piggyback a little telescope teeny tiny telescope um out to saturn and what we would try to do is understand zodiacal light and the extragalactic background things like that and that that instrument got rated very highly um, by the reviewers, but unfortunately it's a ride out to Saturn, which was a planetary mission to go look at Enceladus was not selected. So, you know, game over. Right. Um, but I think, you know, thanks to Jamie Bach and Olivier Doré, the, the project scientist and a few other of us, we kind of kept thinking like, Hmm, what can we do with a really small telescope? Can we, can we do, you know, these kind of science cases. Um, and the initial thought was to do the galaxy evolution stuff. Cause that's a little bit more what cyber does. Um, until Olivier Doré and, and Chris Harada and, and Phil Mouskoff and other people pointed out, Oh, Hey, if you build an instrument that looks like this, it's going to be really good at, um, figuring out where galaxies are. And with that, you know, you turn that around. What, what can you do with knowing where galaxies are? Ah, this inflation. And as soon as that penny dropped, this got a lot more interesting because, as I mentioned, inflation is, you know, one of the holy grails of, of cosmology right now. We really don't know very much or if, if anything really about it. We think it happened, but we don't have any sort of quantitative data to support that um, other than sort of coincidences, coincidences we see about how the universe works that we can't explain easily other ways. So um, once it was kind of a little bit clearer that like, oh yeah, we can really understand what's the three-dimensional structure of galaxies. Um, it was kind of like boom, 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 boom. And, you know, Jamie did a lot of work up at JPL kind of doing preliminary designs about how this telescope might look, how big it is, how would you do the spectral dispersion and sort of connecting the dots that this LVF thing could kind of, you know, be complementary to the detector in a way to really enable it. Um, I think that was kind of the history of the thing. So, you know, when I think about like, when did spherics kind of start in quotation marks? I, I, I think, you know, we had a science meeting in, uh, oh, 2013, something like that, where, um, I don't know how much you guys know about how these things get made, but it was basically like a brainstorming session. So, you know, Jamie got, um, you know, as many smart people as he could in one room. And I, I happened to be able to be allowed in the room and kind of said, okay, guys, like, what if we made a mission like this? What could we do with it? And uh, that was, that was kind of cool. Um, and, and so that's where things kind of started. And since then it's been kind of a question of refining the concept more than anything. So uh, kind of along those lines, once that mission kind of came together, you know, six years ago, 
Has there been any significant changes along the way to go to what got accepted by NASA and what's going to get built? Okay, so you're going to get the whole history now. So uh, let's see. In the beginning, I, I can't even remember. The beginning was um, a bunch of weird optical designs, and eventually we settled on LVFs as being something workable. Um, there's really only one game in town in terms of the detectors that people use with these wavelengths, so we were kind of going to use those. There's different flavors, but it's pretty obvious, um, the basic architecture. Um, and then, you know, once you once you know what detectors you're working, you know what temperature you need to work at, and then it's a question of do we build cryogenic stuff or do we not? And we eventually figured out that we didn't want to use cryogenic stuff because it's a pain in the butt and it limits your mission lifetime. Um, so if you can get away without it, you're better, and we did. Um and so what ended up happening over the next sort of two years after that first meeting is um, we kept sort of refining the idea and kind of, you know, trimming off fat and making it simpler and making it more robust. That's kind of how these things go. Um, until we were left with spherics, which is the one that Phil was talking about, which had four bands and otherwise looked very similar to what, what we're going to build. Um, so that got submitted as a small explorer, which is a slightly lower budget, um, mission in the same explorer class in about 2016, if I recall. And it was, it was down selected for a phase A study, which is where, you know, NASA throws a million bucks at you and you get to, uh, uh, refine the concept some more and then you write it all up and you send it back to NASA and they do that for two or three missions. And then, um, select one based on that concept study report. And at that time we heard that we were declined, which was a bummer. But just before we heard the results from the concept study report, we went back and submitted the basically the same mission as uh, the Midex, which is the slightly larger cost cap. And so we were declined. They picked an X-ray polarimeter for the SMEX. Um, but again, we were chosen for phase A for the mid-X class mission. And so we did another year and another big study, returned the um, materials back to NASA. And um, we felt a lot better because Spherix, even though it was basically the same sort of thing, Spherix as a SMEX didn't really fit that well. It was a bit of a squeeze to get all the science budget in. As a mid-X, though, you know, the cost cap's a lot higher, and it fit a lot better. It made a lot more sense. So we felt kind of good about that. What are some of the trade-offs that you had to make in order to go from a smaller to a bigger craft? You know, there's not a lot of change to the actual hardware, to be honest with you. We figured we could fit th uh, six focal planes instead of the four focal planes, for example. That was a kind of late change. Um... But in terms of like the bus and how big it is and how massive it is and all that, there there really weren't that many changes. It didn't really incur much much difference in terms of like the fundamental specs. So that's just a example of where more money will buy you better stuff, but you can fit it into the same package. So along the way, um, what was the most challenging aspect of the mission to design and why? Challenging to design and uh, You can speak about for you personally or which design aspect did you iterate on the most until you finally got it right? Well, I think the thing that we got a lot of flack for um, was the 
passive cooling. Um, so the passive cooling is these like umbrella things that are basically sunshades, and they, there's several of them because you can kind of get to progressively colder temperatures that way. James Webb is also using this type of umbrella-type cooler, right? Exactly, yes. James Webb is exactly using this type of cooler. Um, and, you know, earlier on the, in the mission, we were going through reviews where they are saying, hmm, I don't know, that, that deployable looks a lot like Cassini's high-gain antenna, and a Cassini's high-gain antenna didn't deploy, so are you sure it's going to deploy? And, oh, we've never built a fully passive system before. Are you sure that it's going to actually read it, reach its base temperature? And And stuff that it's like... Oh, it's hard to argue because it's like, well, look, it's fundamental physics and we think we know how to do physics so we can do calculations and like show you the results <laughs> and we think we're going to hit that. So, yeah, I mean, if it doesn't deploy, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Um, so I, I feel like we took a lot of flack for this this sort of umbrella passive cooling thing that was probably undeserved. But, you know, NASA is pretty conservative, or at least the people who have to make decisions. So. Uh, so, personally, for you, uh, what is what aspect of the Spherex mission or spacecraft excites you the most? What excites me the most is probably the inflationary science. Like I said, I I, I I'm a cosmologist, so you know my my primary science area as a scientist is understanding the large scale structure of the universe and the history and how did it get to be the way it is and all this kind of stuff. And I think um, it's been pretty clear to us for a long time that inflation is really hard to get your hands on. It's, it's, uh, leaves fairly subtle, um, imprints that are sort of, how to say, um, smoking guns that are like, oh, you could not have got that any, any other way. Um, so being able to, you know, constrain inflation and maybe more interestingly, be like really, really good at constraining inflation better than other things we're thinking of building. That's very exciting. I think that's, you know, depending on what we see and, you know, politics and yada, yada, you know, that's kind of Nobel Prize worthy level science. And I, not that I'm saying we're going to win one, but I I think that in terms of like excitement, that's really cool. That That's something quite unique. So what's next for the team um, from a preparedness standpoint? And then what's next, the step for development of the spacecraft? Um, so... Uh, Launch is supposed to be in late 2023. The thing about Explorers is that they're pretty tight on money, and so you can't delay that or NASA will cancel you. So it's going to be pretty much late 2023. Um, you know, a lot of the designs have been made, and um, now it's really a question of, like, really refining it and dotting the I's and crossing the T's more than anything. Um, so, you know, the next... The next step is um, basically to start the detailed design and then the fabrication and then calibration and then flight and all that, you know, has to fit into uh, three, four years of time. So it's a bit compressed. And then, you know, while that's all going on, for me personally, I'm going to be spending a lot of time you know, with my research group at RIT, uh, thinking about, okay, how are we going to analyze these data? What's that going to look like? Uh, building routines, doing simulations, and making sure we can do it. Um, and making sure that we can sort of deliver products that are the quality that we told NASA we would deliver. Um, so those are, those are kind of the next steps. Um, so 
for people who are interested in stellar and in galactic astronomy, um, whether they're high school, college students, or just lay people, what would you recommend that they look into if they're interested in your mission or just the general field um, to kind of get a better understanding of, you know, what the kind of topics your spacecraft and payload are going to uh, produce? Um, so the the most obvious uh, resource will be the website, which is spherex.caltech.edu. Um, Caltech is C-A-L-T-E-C-H. Um, that will have sort of high-level overviews and keep uh, news and any sort of, you know, public articles, things like that, you know, will show up there. Um, I think that the... More interested people should look at the uh, couple papers that we we wrote uh, as summaries um, f for the community of these two workshops that we had over the years. Um, those are written at a, you know, probably advanced undergraduate kind of level of understanding. And I think it would be uh, really interesting for people to to kind of have a look there and, and it'll give us, it'll give you a really broad overview of the kind of science that Spherix is capable of. And we have links to those in the blog post that will come to this episode. Uh, they're actually really interesting reads that we uh, went through before we sat down today. Oh, wow. You guys did your research. All right. Uh, Dr. Zemkov, thank you very much for, for speaking with us about Spherix. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in your future research. And this is a super cool mission, so uh, I personally leave following this pretty closely uh, up until 2023. Great, guys. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes, and you can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in space on our website, blog.spexcast.com. Also, let us know what you think of the show. You can leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, or reach out to us via Twitter at SpexCast, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. <laughs>